I am so excited to share with you guys my love for Catbird NYC, one of my favorite makers of jewelry on the planet. A few years ago, I was exploring Williamsburg, Brooklyn for the first time, and I happened to walk into this really sweet brick and mortar store, and I looked around and I saw that it was filled with the most delicate, beautiful, sparkly jewelry, all of which seemed like if I dreamed up a line or a type of jewelry, this would be it. I'm the kind of person that wears the same jewelry to go swimming in the morning that I wear to a formal wedding that same night. The thing about the jewelry that they make at Catbird is that it is jewelry that has this ease of wear and this sort of quietness that just slips into your life and you can put their jewelry on and you never take it off. And the thing that they became super popular for originally are these stacking rings, like these beautiful, delicate 14 karat gold stacking rings that you can layer and have this really delicate aesthetic. So if you're gonna spend money on something that you want but don't really need, do it with Catbird because it is an investment in yourself. You'll feel confident and beautiful in Catbird jewelry. Go to catbirdnyc.com. Okay. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be Hey, everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. When she was only 15 years old, she was cast by Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim in their original production of Merrily We Roll Along. Suddenly, she found herself in the middle of what would become musical theater history. Here to tell the story of that legendary production and more, Abigail Pogrebin. Welcome to the podcast, Abigail. A-okay. Hey everyone, my guest today is Abigail Pogrebin. Abigail starred in the original production of Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, directed by Hal Prince. She is the author of My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew, stars of David, Prominent Jews Talk About Being Jewish, which was adapted into an off-Broadway musical. She wrote the book One in the Same about her life as an identical twin to Robin Pogrebin, the cultural reporter for the New York Times, and she also wrote the book Showstopper, which recounts her teenage adventure 
in the show Merrily We Roll Along. She was a producer on 60 Minutes. She has been published in many magazines and newspapers, including Newsweek, New York Magazine, and The Daily Beast. She lives in New York City, and I am so thrilled to welcome Abigail to my podcast. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm a huge fan. Well, I'm a huge fan of yours, and now I get to tell you that publicly. Thank so you. It's well, a thrill. It's so mutual. The other thing that I failed to mention in reading your bio, which is obviously such a truncated rendition of your bio, is that you were also a part of Free to Be You and Me. Mm -hmm. Sondheim and Free to Be You and Me are the soundtracks of my life and certainly of my childhood. So it's kind of amazing that by the time you were 15, you were part of two of the most culturally iconic pieces of work for my generation or our generation for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's amazing. Obviously, Merrily became iconic after its failure. Um, and that's such a... I hope that happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> Alana you're, Levine. You're already iconic. It's true. <laughs> you it's are. It's true. We're just waiting for the big fail. You don't have to wait. All right. Um, but Free to Be was, I think, beyond their wildest dreams, became this touchstone of a time, a culture, child-rearing, the women's movement, um, equality. I mean, just amazing number of people come up to me and say, I think, are you on that carousel on the TV show? Um, because you still look the same as you did when you were nine, which I is wish. extraordinary. I wish. You know, I peaked at nine. Well, really. I want to just fold in here that part of why you were a part of that is that your mom, Letty Pogrebin, was the founding editor of Ms. Magazine or, right. or publisher. What she was, was her position? She was a, a, a one of the five women who co-created Ms. Magazine in 1973, sometimes I get that date wrong, with Gloria Steinem, literally started out of meetings and brainstorming in people's living rooms. And it was a magazine that everyone assumed would, you know, crash and burn. And, I mean, talk about something that changed a culture and a time. They were against incredible odds. And I did actually a cover story for New York Magazine for the 40th anniversary of Ms. And to go back to the archives... Gloria's archives and my, my mother's papers are all at Smith. And I went up there actually with my daughter and we were combing through. I mean, everything was obviously, there's no computers, there's nothing. Even It was handwritten on yellow pads, designing this magazine, envisioning what it could be and also just all the obstacles in terms of funding it because everyone, no one wanted to, you know, pay for advertising for, you know, a feminist rag. So, in some, I don't remember exactly when in the Ms. gestation, my mother and Marlo Thomas um, started talking about creating a record, it started with the album, that would essentially hold up um, what children, how children should be raised without any expectations of what a boy can do and a girl can do. Right. Um, my mother edited something called Stories for Free Children. Some people who know Ms. remember it. It was in every magazine, I think almost every issue, and it was a story that had no gender stereotypes, which, believe it or not, was just unheard of at the time. I, I can imagine. So that, I think, was the germ of... of of free to be. And I just remember mom bringing home songs and playing them for us. I mean, I, I can't believe we were hearing them first of this is, do you like this? This is going to go on the album. And then obviously Harry Belafonte and Alan Alda, and you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it was my, I mean, just the fact that I held that album cover in my hand for so many years. And then the fact that you are sitting here across from me is all a little too much for my little That's heart so to bear. Nice. Well, let's go back. You grew up in 
New York City mm-hmm. on the Upper West Side? We started in the village, the okay. West Village, uh, on a little street called St. Luke's Place, which a lot of people miss because it's a very kind of hidden, beautiful little gem of a street. And we lived just on the bottom floor of a, of a townhouse. It was my parents' kind of starter apartment. And then we moved um, to the Upper West Side where all Jewish families go <laughs> um, when I was five. Um, so I have a twin sister, Robin, as you mentioned, and a brother, David. And we pretty much stayed there and my parents are still there. So how did this love of performing enter your arts, or, th- or this love of the performing arts? Yeah, it's a really good question because my parents are not performers. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's obviously a writer and an activist. Um, my father's very funny, that that's for sure. So in a sense, he performed at dinner parties. But they were not singers. They were not actors. And almost like from out of the, room, the womb, Robin and I were like doing shows and acts. It, I, it's kind of insufferable to imagine it, except it was cute up until it wasn't probably anymore. But since last we, year, last, last year, year being it cute. Was, that was the end. You're right, Alana. <laughs> um, please stop performing, you guys. Yeah, Just please. It's enough. Um, so we literally made acts. You know, other people would come home from school and play normal things. We were choreographing and performing and putting up the blanket for the curtain and making tickets. And it was constant. We had more dress-up clothes than real clothes. Did you go to the theater a lot as a family we and did. see things? We did. That is, that's actually, I remember Phil on the Roof was our first show uh, and the Fantastics. Those were probably the first two. I listened to no pop music. It was all soundtrack, show tunes. It was all albums. I remember what they all looked like. And I almost to a show, know every word of every song. I mean, that's just how, that was my day. And I actually thought it was everybody's Like, Well, you had life. a twin sister who was mirroring that exact exactly. passion right back at you and joining exactly. that. So you guys were in this together. We were in this together. And, and this is a story that not everyone knows. And if, I, if we hadn't both lived through it, um, sometimes I would think I made it up. We auditioned for Annie, the original Annie. The Broadway production. But when it was at Good Speed Opera House, which okay. you know is just this incredible summer stock um, where a lot of things begin. And it was, you know, Martin Charnin was doing it up at the, up at the Good Speed as it was in its, you know, formation and workshopping. And we had a very successful audition, but we auditioned together. We always performed together. Um, and they said, we'll take one of you. And it was just one of those moments where the answer just had to be no. Do you remember as a family, your parents yes. sitting down with you? It's like, have you seen Sophie's Choice, girls? <laughs> <laughs> so he is wet. So we were Not 10. Not exactly. No, maybe. we were 10. We weren't really ready for that Holocaust right. uh, analogy. Um, so they also were really worried about our education. I think there was already that idea that if you were a show kid, you were kind of lost to a normal um, school life. And so they weren't so excited about it, although I think they might have they might have considered it because it was so- starting in the summer. And I remember those auditions. I remember Danielle Brisbois. I don't know if you know Danielle sure. Brisbois. And, and Andrew McCardell. I mean, they were all there. And I think... Andrea got it, just by the way. <laughs> not sure you're aware. Andrea McCardle well, just did Just to be clear, we weren't, we weren't getting Annie. We were getting an orphan. Right. Okay, well, I want to be clear. A starter. A starter part. <laughs> a starter part. So we walked away from that. And it was a lesson for me in, I think, certainly my parents' values, but also, and not just in terms of education, but fairness. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, years later, and I'll know, I know we'll get to Merrily, Robin did not audition. I did. And it was almost like we started to do that in our lives. We would step back for each other. If that makes sense. Wow. So 
Not to focus so much on the heartbreak that you turned Annie down, but how did you even come to audition for something like that? Were you guys auditioning? Were you becoming professional acting children? That's a very good question. We we were and we weren't in the sense that we had an agent. Her name has gone out of my head. She was, you know, one of those people near this studio. Um, but we knew Michael Price, who was the legendary executive producer of The Good Speed, and we knew him because his wife taught us how to read, believe it or not, when we were in kindergarten. His wife was Joanne Price. We stayed friends with them. And we would go up to the good speed pretty much every summer because we loved shows so much, sit on the steps and just watch show after show after show. So when they decided to do Annie, I think it was because we had that connection that they said, you know what, why don't you, you know, you can take a shot at this. Yeah, your kids are singing and dancing nonstop. Why not? So before that, had you already auditioned for anything, or was that like your first time? That's a good question. I know that we did this. um, It was kind of like a commercial or infomercial. They probably were called something else then with Eric Estrada. I don't know if you remember Eric Estrada. I'm sorry. Do I? Do I? I'm seeing his poster (laughs) right now in my mind's eye. And it was was like that stupid twin joke where Robin hits herself and I say, ow. (laughs) Um, and I don't remember if that was pre-Annie audition or post. But the Annie chapter was like something that we talked about probably too much because we had a brush with that professional thrill of being in front of these people. And it was a show that obviously went on to great success. And obviously we missed out on that. So other than the Annie that was not, did you do anything else before Merrily? And I was constantly uh, constantly performing in school. Okay. And I don't think I did anything professional other than that. You know, Robin and I had a belt. You know that Aunt, they called it the Annie belt, where we really didn't sing correctly. Um, but we had these big, chesty... Um, Loud. Yeah. And when you're young, that that's working. You know, when you're 10, 11 years old, 12 years old. And frankly, thank goodness, it kind of worked for Marilee, although I was the weakest singer in the show, which we can discuss. But I was, again, not trained. We were really never trained. We always took acting classes. We always took dance classes. I don't know if you remember Luigi was uh, was this jazz dancer. And Robin and I would take those, like, show, show dance classes all the time. Um, and so we were, yes, like, kind of crazy obsessed always. But... Education came first, and we weren't, like, running around auditioning all the time. Right. That was your parents, sort of. That was really important to them and to you. You both ended up going to Yale, which is an extraordinary accomplishment as well. So would you say when you look back, did you and Robin, who really are identical, identical twins— We are. Um, you know, I know some sometimes people find out that they're not, and there's, like, heartbreak involved in that. Um, but you are, 100%. 100%. The science has been— proven. Did you sound the same? Did you have the same voices? Were you identical in in your in your sound and your dancing and kind of your talent? I mean, we were extremely similar. I would know the difference. And you know, it's funny because people say, you know, did your parents ever not tell you apart? They never had a problem, but pretty much everyone else did. And as crazy as it sounds, I will sometimes turn a corner, see my reflection, and for a split second... And that is crazy, but happens. I'm like, is that Robin? No, that's me. That's how alike we look. But in terms of our, our voices, now my voice, which we can talk about, is is compromised because of, I have this vocal cord issue. And when I listen to Robin, I'm hearing my old voice because when I listen to, like, the home videos with my, my kids, that's my old voice. And so we don't sound alike anymore. But Wait, so when she sings now, you feel like, oh, that's how I used to I sound. I used to sound. Yeah. 
which is which is kind of a nice thing. It's poignant, but it also is nice to sort of have that preserved in another person. Right. Um, but I uh, wish someone like had my memory. Yeah. Because like, my memory is so gone now. I wish I just had someone who I could turn to and be like, what? That's such a beautiful way of putting it. Okay. She does have my memory because I can say to her, are you smelling that? And we're like right away. That's like Mohonk, 1980. You know, it's really true. And and that you know when I did the book on twins, I found that the science was completely bears that out in identical twins that you gravitate to the same things and your memory is kind of filed away in a similar way. Um, so yes, she she and I have very clear differences. I would say, but there is outwardly a lot of similarities, and there were as performers. So when you say the way you put it so beautifully that that we would sometimes step out of the way so the other person could have their moment, as it were, Merrily We Roll Along has actually now been preserved not just as a memory for people who were in New York at the time or, or Sondheim slash Prince aficionados who are obsessed with that production, but Lonnie Price, who starred in the musical with you, made this amazing documentary that really chronicles the experience because there was this found footage from ABC News, ABC News that, that never aired but, but was found magically. So you're 15. I know... You went to school with Hal Prince's daughter, Daisy. Did you know her before the Merrily thing came to be? We were very good friends. Okay. Is that how you ended up auditioning for this show? It is or? partly how. Um, they were auditioning kids all over the place. And so New York schools were part of where they were, you know, trolling for, sure. for talent. Um, Daisy and I became fast friends because of our love for musical theater. So we would literally sit on the steps of our high school singing obscure musical songs because we both knew Damn Yankees top to bottom. And obviously her dad, Hal, had produced shows that were so like my, again, you know, soundtrack of my life. Sure. Um, and so we bonded over that and we were friends. And when Was that weird for you at all, like to be friends with someone whose dad sort of had the key to the kingdom that totally, you loved not so Weird, thrilling. I mean, okay. literally, when other people were kind of going to clubs on a Saturday night, we were going to Avita and sitting on the steps. I remember exactly where in the balcony, kind of week after week. I never got, I never tired of it. And your incredible interview with Patty Lapone, I was just thinking about like, I lived with you in high school. You right. know, you were my Saturday night treat. And it was incredible, undeniably. You know, some people are maybe friends with Mick Jagger's kid. I was friends with Hal Prince's kid. And not only were we close, but we really shared this love and could talk about it forever. And it was, it was part of why I think. When the Merrily auditions happened, um, she definitely was a, a champion for me to have a shot at it. But she was auditioning, too. Um, and that could have been more awkward than it ended up being. Joanna Merlin, um, who's, you know, an incredible legendary. I keep saying the word legendary, but these are legends. But that's what was going on. Yeah. Joanna Merlin had cast all of Hal's and Steve's shows um, in the last, whatever, 10 years before Merrily, which was a 1981 production. So she was, um, and she was the original title in Fiddle on the Roof. And so she was the casting director and also not only a brilliant actress, um, a great acting teacher, and really maternal to all of us. So even though it was a cutthroat audition process, she was very inviting and loving because we were all kids, very fragile at that point in our lives. Were you one of the younger participants in this? Or, I was the or youngest. Was everyone, you were. I was officially the youngest. Um, so I was cast when I was 15, but with the show open when I was 16. Um, and I, Daisy and I were the youngest, but I, I, I'm younger than, than Daisy. So here you are, a city kid who lives, breathes, and all you want is to be a part of Broadway. Your friend's dad happens to be 
creating, writing, directing a musical with Stephen Sondheim and George Firth, and they're going to use kids. Obviously, your parents agree to this. Right. Robin decides not to audition because it wasn't something she wanted to do anymore in the same way or just felt like, okay, with Annie, only one of us was chosen. Let's not go through that again. I don't exactly remember why she stepped back. I know she never auditioned. It wasn't because you, like, locked her in a closet. (laughs) I could have locked her in a closet. I hope she's out by now. No, Um, I mean, of course you should come audition as well. No, both of us should. Where's Robin? (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was it was definitely an act of generosity and it's something that I say not to even the scales I've also stepped aside for certain things we just it's almost an unspoken kind of twin pact Um, we can you feel when one of you needs a little more or wants it a little more I think that's right and I think we're each other's greatest cheerleaders that's something people don't believe with twins but particularly with identical twins for us it was not a competition it was very much like reflective um, glory when one did well and very um, and and kind of internalized difficulty when one was struggling Mm. and so we took each other's joy on and struggles on and similarly whether it was a boyfriend or whether it was a show we kind of said this is yours now, um, which is not to say we didn't always. We, we we did audition when we both got to Yale freshman year. We both auditioned for Fiddler. Fiddler keeps coming back to the well, story. Well, it's, it's in every story, yeah. right? Um, and and she did you was get it? she was from Asera and I was Chava, and that felt fair, you know. I mean, that was those are different, very different roles, but we were both in it. So it wasn't that we completely stopped competing. It's just that I know that for Merrily, she gave that to me. And after what happened, she was like, boy, am I glad <laughs> I came. Right. Because that there ship is... went down very quickly. <laughs> exactly. And underst- And from what I know, the Yale production of Fiddler was a great success. Thank you. It so was. So it all went well. Like Broadway, New Haven. Exactly. <laughs> but in the end, if you love being in a show, it is the same thing, isn't it? Completely. It's so true. And, and you know, you're in a way unaware of success or failure when you're in something that is so thrilling and this was just undeniably um, like a dream. It was like a dreamlike experience every step of the way, including the f- the fast crash. You know, the fact that it, we we worked on it for so long, there was such a long um, rehearsal process and creation process, and then only ran for two weeks. And that's just, you know, talk about lessons learned very quickly. Um, and But still... It was surreal. And I was just going back to school. Other people were actually losing their livelihoods in a much more profound way. Do you remember what you had to do at the very first audition? Did you have to bring something in to sing or Mm -hmm. did they give you material? We had to bring um, something in to sing. And I think I sang If I Were a Bell. I'm pretty sure that was my song. And, you know, again, when I watched the video that Lonnie dug up, which was extremely hard to find, the ABC News because it was a Hal Prince Sondheim show, said, we're going to track this entire process, pretty much assuming it was also going to be a success and run. And so... To run a profile, uh, to run a piece on it. Yeah, it was going to be a documentary on the making of essentially the next company, you know, the next Little Night Music. And um, so Helen Whitney, who was the documentary producer for ABC News, was with us all the time. So when Lonnie dug this up and I saw my own audition, I was just so, it's so hard to watch yourself at 15 years old. The outfit alone, Alana, is just as a Shonda, as we say, as the Jews say. As we say in Fiddler. (laughs) Yeah, it's a shame. It's just a a horror. I don't know. It worked. I guess. I guess. I mean, you know, I think Frank Rich called us all dead wood in his... (laughs) 
in so his sweet. review. So yeah. sweet, especially when you're reviewing children. You really want to make sure that you kill them at the same time. When I met him, finally, I said, I'm one of the dead wood. I'm one of the people you killed from the Merrily <laughs> Abby Deadwood? Slate your name. Abby. I kind of like it. Deadwood. It's not bad. It has a ring. It became an HBO series, I believe. So I know, I know Frank Rich has gone on record as saying that it killed him to write that review of the two men he admired so much in the musical theater world. But he did write it. He did write it. Be that as it may. No, and I think that, you know, this idea, it's almost cliche now to see your heroes stumble. Um, Mm. And obviously, they didn't fully really stumble because it's an incredible show and it has lived on and the score especially is extraordinary. And for all the reasons that people have tried to dissect, including Steve in his book, Finishing the Hat, why it didn't work, um, I'll just never forget watching them try to figure out how to save it, fix it. And I think I've I've kept those lessons with me. You you just can never be done. Mm -hmm. And you also can never be um, complacent about your talent or your instincts, that there was just a – these were moments not of panic, but it wasn't like, oh, we got this, mm-hmm. um, despite all of their successes in the past. Has it ever been done with children in the cast since your production? Only in schools and when, when it's just like any other kid production. I don't think they've ever done what they originally envisioned, which many people have forgotten, which is that we were intentionally supposed to be kids starting as um, disillusioned adults and then go backwards to see how bright-eyed and um, optimistic we were um, at the very start. And it was an idea that confused people. The chronology completely kind of was lost on the audience or they couldn't figure out who was who or who was going back in time, forward in time. Um, and it's why we went from these incredible costumes. I had like 10 costume changes and I am I was in the ensemble and I just remember feathers and sequins and incredible heels. And suddenly we were in T-shirts <laughs> that said, my assistant, his lawyer. You know, we had to literally label ourselves to clarify the show. And, you know, there were those moments where like, is this a, a good creative thing or a sign that something's not working? Well, I remember, do you remember the movie Bugsy Malone? Oh, I love that movie. Right. Just the idea of seeing people our age in kind of a nightclub gangster world. There is something very magical and misled at the idea of a 15-year-old really being able to play a middle-aged, grown, washed-up person in a way that an audience would really believe. It's so right? true. Like, if you think about it, it would be a rare actress or actor who could pull that off. And so I guess at some point they were like, okay, what's the most important part for us? Is it the, the growing up part or is it where they landed in the end? That is a very hard thing to ask of of anyone under any circumstances. It's really true. And when they did the reunion, the first reunion that in a way turned the the corner on the show because right. this reunion was so... Who created that reunion it was, concert? Uh, it, was, it was actually Lonnie. Um, I, I think it was Musical Theater Works, which is this wonderful organization. I don't even know if it exists anymore, mm-hmm. um, that gives musical theater lessons, essentially classes for disadvantaged kids. And so this was a benefit for, I think, Musical Theater Works, which Lonnie was was involved in. So it came from him. It was 2001, I believe. I thought we were just going to be kind of holding binders and getting up there. I was like, oh, whatever. I haven't sung in so long. And suddenly... It's like an encore. It was Susan Stroman. And Steve is there. And 
were doing everybody's back. It was incredible. How many years after the production was that? So that was from 1981 to 2001. So you do the math. Okay. That was many years later. Many years later. (laughs) But I was an English major, not a math major. But I will say that in that show, just what you're talking about was suddenly fixed or or, or vastly uh, improved, which is this idea of being seasoned, hardened, uh, disillusioned, having gone through a life um, in these faces that now Jim Walton playing Frank, he had been through a lot. And so yeah. when he would sing, you know, the same lyrics, they suddenly had a completely different um, poignancy and um, emotion and, and frankly, uh kind of credibility as to what you're saying. Like, we believe you now. Right. I mean, maybe it's easier to start somewhere and remember back to what innocence felt like in a sense memory sort of way. Anyway, I love that everyone was game and willing to try something. And what was heartbreaking about it is not that every show is entitled to the review it wants, but but they were really trying something and going, we are at the top of our game. No one is more famous than us. And we are willing, rather than to do what we know we can do, we're willing at this stage in our careers to try something completely different. It's true. And, 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 and you know, in the documentary, Steve says, um, and I didn't realize he felt this way, that in a way they were too successful right at that merrily point and people were gunning for them. There was schadenfreude. There was a sense you can't both be daring um, creatively and make money at it mm. and we're kind of going to take you down because there was a lot of bad press while we were rehearsing and I remember that. Like why Why is this – are people kind of sowing you know, discontent and negativity before we've even had our shot. And that, I think, was just because Steve and Hal were these... Were this, God. Yeah, they were, and they but were going to be torn down. is that no longer down. true in our culture, that you're not allowed to be brilliant and make money? Like, what's going to happen when Lin-Manuel Miranda recovers yeah. from Hamilton and sets out to write his next thing. Is he not allowed to have In the Heights Hamilton and something else? Right. Is there some... You know, I think there is. I, I hope it doesn't happen to him, but there is something that people kind of get almost like weary of someone's, um, you know, aw uh, shucksness, right? Mm. I mean, I think that sort of happened with Taylor Swift. Like, stop saying, so, stop looking so surprised uh-huh. when you win an award. <laughs> right. Like you have a home built just for your Grammy, so we got, right. accept so, it. Accept it. The, yeah. so the shock is over. Huh. Shock and awe. But I do think that, you know, and he's a great example, Lin-Manuel, because there's very few like him where, you know, you're, you're, you're at the top and you stay at the top and then you keep being told you are the top. And mm-hmm. I think with Stephen Howe, they just had this rare alchemy together, this rare, rare partnership that people, I think, saw and kind of felt like enough already. We're not going to just give it, give it to you. But who can psychoanalyze, you know, what, what people were, were gunning for at the time? But you're right that they took a risk. And part of why it was so devastating for our cast, because as you know, every cast is a family, is that we were young. And for most of us, it was their first experience and their first disillusionment. It was getting, it was mirroring the show in some ways to watch people stumble, fail, struggle, um, essentially be somewhat humiliated, although that's a strong word. But, you know, that we were all 
kind of getting life lessons in a crash course and we had become very close and suddenly we were we were dispersed it's like it's over and and we're not together anymore and the fact that we've all stayed in touch some might say is completely pathetic <laughs> um like here they are again the merrily the original merrily cast we just we just went to studio to 54 below because there were some kids really talented kids from the original merrily cast who performed the songs of merrily for a night and so wait wait say that again who okay. performed so the the ca- original cast now you? right me we all have kids now oh your children so it did wasn't a concert it, right it not wasn't yours actually, literally not mine li- mine literally but other original cast members kids possessive and they got up and sang the songs of merrily and talked about how growing up this was a show that shaped them because their parents it was the the story yeah still remained a backdrop in their lives exactly and so they performed at studio at at 54 below and most of us in the city came you know so there's Lonnie there's me there's Jim Walton um and you I look around we take a picture and I think this is both wonderful and someone could be like seriously you guys just keep reliving this show well i think it is not the former i think that when you go through you know your veterans your your war buddies you guys went through something that was really defining and really beautiful and you know it's not every day that you get to work with legends and it's not every day you get to create something from scratch together and it's not every day that it's done publicly so no one else would understand what you went through, really, uh, except those people. When I look back at why I look, I know why we all still love each other, and I know why we're all sort of protective of each other. And part of it is that we—it's just what you said—we know what it was like to be there and to think this is the sweetest, most extraordinary opportunity. And no matter what else happens in our lives, um, this is just one of those formative tent poles of of a life that we just were lucky enough to be given. Um, Do you remember it like it was yesterday or does it feel like a very long time ago now? I it's it's long ago now. I was I'm glad I kept a journal because some of it comes back to you um, and then is refreshed and there's photographs that bring things back. But I think because we've all stayed in touch, um, it kind of keeps the memory fresher than it might otherwise. But it was a long time ago. What can you share with me about Stephen Sondheim? You were 15, and so you would probably appreciate maybe different things now than you did then. But what was his process like? Did he talk directly to you, even though he wasn't directing you? He is not a big talker or schmoozer. But that said, there was something um, incredibly kind and supportive and warm about him. I sort of felt like you know, maybe I was projecting, but like, I get you and you get me. And I think everyone felt that way with Steve. But you just didn't kind of cozy up. There wasn't, there was more sort of physical affection with Paul Gimignani, who's, you know, the musical director for all of Hal and Steve's shows. Um, And even with Hal, who was more paternal. Um, And Steve isn't a father. So it wasn't sort of father kid. But he, I think I was surprised to see, he said that this was the hardest um, flop for him in the sense that he felt like he let us down. That that was incredible because I didn't know he kind of took, took on that responsibility in that same way. Um, what was incredible was just to watch him at the piano. And I really remember him playing through the score. And he's obviously not a great singer, but it's Steve singing his own music. And even just the sight of his handwriting on things um, 
that's just it, it really felt like you're kind of with Da Vinci or, you know, put in you the are. Yeah, Picasso. Um, and he he's also very confident, you know, and he should be. But it, but I mean, sure, me, like you don't riff on Sondheim. You don't decide to make a line your own. It should be sung the way he wrote it. And I watched him do that at one point. And Jim Walton has heard me tell this story. So it's just during the the actual the reunion concert, he went over and to, to Jim, whom he's close to, and said, sing it the way I wrote it. Or I'll kill you. <laughs> and he took out a knife. Do you hear me? I'm going to cut you. I heard that happened. <laughs> Not quite that scary. <laughs> so I know you said the next day, I'm 15, I go back to school. But was there a part of you, even though you were young, that felt humiliated or relieved or what? Yeah, not humili- humiliated at all. I think relieved a little bit, partly because... I wasn't sure what this, how this would upend my life in a way that I might never get back to normalcy. Had it been a big success? Yes. And, you know, I still would have loved it to be or maybe run more than 16 performances. That would have been good. Were you going to school during the day still or did I was, you have tutors? I was mostly doing homework that was kind of – I kept up with assignments. I went to school when I could, but it meant being out a lot. And I'm pretty type A, so I tried to keep up in the dressing room. I once actually missed an entrance, which Paul Gimignani, will, he, he put up a sign in the pit, call your agent. It was awful. All I had to do was, like, push a chair out in opening doors. I, I wanted to kill myself. But you came out, and that's what was waiting for you, a sign yeah. that said, call your agent. Call your agent, like, your, your career you're, is in you're trouble. Fired. And I think yeah. it was literally because I was doing homework in up you know upstairs in my dressing room, which was, you know, a flight up. And I missed my entrance. but So I was kind of trying to keep up, but obviously your head is, is not in, in it in the same way. And so when I went back to school, um, it was junior year, and I just kind of picked up where I left off and auditioned for shows in high school again. There was no sense that, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and I right. can't come I down. Can't do not at all. Charlie I'm, Brown <laughs> at, at Dalton. But Daisy went back to school with you. Yeah, she did. She did. It's, it's really crazy. I know. That is crazy. So we're going to move on although I could circle back to this over and over again. You finish high school. Mm -hmm. You go to Yale. Mm -hmm. You do shows there. At that point, are you still thinking I'm going to be a professional actress, or were you so impacted by Marilee's journey that it gave you pause? I think the answer is both. I still thought it was what I was going to do, but something had changed. Um, And it's not something I necessarily recognized at the time. But I can see when I read my journals that some doubt had crept in about whether this was a sustainable way of life. And it it wasn't so much fear of failure, but an awareness that things can rise and fall very quickly. And so, you know, the starry eyes you had are no longer just they're a little dimmed in the sense of reality, kind of encroaching a bit. And so I still stayed at it. I was um, in in a lot of shows. I directed it in in. Uh, in college, and I choreographed in college, and I was a double major, English and theater. Was so, Robin the same? Robin was the same, but she was doing less theater. She began to step away and do more journalism. And so when I graduated, I was working. I had this wonderful job in journalism instead of waitressing, essentially. What was it? Fred Friendly, whom George Clooney played uh, Fred in um, Good Night and Good Luck, he was a, a just a f- iconic CBS producer. He produced uh, See It Now with Edward R. Murrow in the 50s, um, an incredible guy who had started this PBS series. 
and uh, called Media and Society Seminars. And it was these TV, Socratic method, incredible roundtables with like, you know, Leslie Stahl with Scalia. You know, it's just everyone from every field, giants in science, in in law, in um, in journalism, kind of playing out a hypothetical um, to tease out constitutional issues or ethical issues. And I thought it was the greatest teaching tool plus riveting television. And I asked if I could be an intern during college. And I started to do that in my summers. So I had this sort of weird dichotomy of doing research for Fred's um, Media and Society. Uh, Cynthia McFadden, who's now on NBC, was his executive producer then and my mentor. And when I graduated, I kept I st- stayed with with Fred and, and with Cynthia, but I was getting on the equity line at dawn. And it mm-hmm. was very discordant. Like on one level, I'm on my knees begging for this role and I'm six in the morning just trying to get a slot. Then I go up to Columbia um, Journalism School where their offices were and, you know, work on like medical ethics and neonatology. And so I was on one level kind of rewarded for going from A to B, you know, uptown and then in the equity line kind of feeling um, dejected a lot. And, you know, I'm, I'm not great with rejection. I think I'm pretty hardy in terms of it. But as you know, it's like you're up one day down the next. And the, the couple shows that I did get were either out of town or at a, you know, tiny theater in New York that was kind of like dark and depressing and no one was coming. I remember I did this one show and my parents like could not find the words afterwards. <laughs> To tell me literally that I was, I mean, they were just like, well, well, you know, that must have been an experience. A writer in the magazine. (laughs) So for her to be at at a loss for words. Speechless. Yes. That's painful. And I did Mrs. Warren's profession up at Rockville Center in Long Island or up wherever Long Island is. Which was, it just depends on where you're standing. (laughs) (laughs) And that was a great experience, but I'm like, I'm in Rockville Center. You know, yeah. and that's what you do, and I get it. And maybe if I I stayed at it, but I def I had this amazing acting teacher named Gene Lasco. He was so amazing. It's where I met our mutual friend Al Styron in his class, um, and he said to me, "You're auditioning on your knees. You can't go in there thinking this isn't going to work. You got to go in there saying I'm getting this." And I think that's where I I was no longer a fighter. That's such an interesting way to put it. And also, they always, you know, say if there's anything else that you're interested in, go for it because it will give you so much more pleasure, exactly. so much more quickly, you know, for most people. No. And the idea that you're working with this incredible, you know, Fred Friendly and these brains and yeah. ideas, and it was such a a contrast, a, a contrast. But also, you weren't trading in creativity for something else. It was another kind of creativity, and it was also watching how obsessed you had to be about your own appearance about you couldn't just go to the equity you know to that audition without Mm -hmm. doing your hair without doing your makeup without worrying about your clothes there was so much external um kind of maintenance to it all and it really wasn't about your brain very much i mean it it was in the sense that you have to take a role and make it your own um but it was alan alda who you interviewed in this wonderful podcast um who i actually was lucky enough to know because he was a friend of my mom's from free to be who said to me at one point, and I'll never forget it, if, if you can, if just what you said, if you can imagine doing anything else in your life and enjoying it, then don't, don't do this because you're not going to be able to stay the course. 
And it's just rang in my brain, those words, because I enjoyed other things. Right. And and we're fortunate enough to have an opportunity to explore them. It's funny when you say that, I remember early on, and I talked to people about this, there's so much shame involved in saying out loud, oh, I can't imagine doing something else. Does that make me not an artist? Does that make me someone, you know, less than? And I think there is folded into that this feeling of failure. Like, oh, I I don't have it, yep. whatever that is. And, and to really understand that it's actually the opposite. It's actually really brave to make the choice to step away from something on your own terms. It's really hard, but I think I think what your story proves is if you are a creative person, you will find ways to nurture and explore that creativity. It just might look different than what you originally thought, you know, it was going to appear as. So you you find yourself kind of, it sounds like, in a very elegant way, taking your foot off, you know, the gas pedal and and switching it to another gas pedal, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's a it, terrible it, metaphor. It's actually it was so great, beautiful in it, my mind. <laughs> I wish you guys were here seeing it because I did a really elegant move you, with my hands. You did. It, it was like, it was dance. <laughs> Actually, I think it's the perfect metaphor because it was gradual. It, it wasn't jarring. It mm-hmm. wasn't like I have Abby has now turned right instead of left. It was sort of subtle, and maybe it was because I wasn't working that visibly. But I was relieved in that that I didn't announce if this is over exactly. And you know, to go from the Fred Friendly job, I then moved out uh, to California and worked for KQED, which is a public station there. So I kind of had almost like a geographic break from New York and then came back and worked for Bill Moyers um, and Charlie Rose, uh, which, you know, is another whole story and and, fr- and 60 Minutes. And so I kind of was on my way to a different story. And I do think we all need a story. We don't want to look as if we're just kind of flailing around. So I felt comfortable in sort of the leaving of the theater uh, kind of track, um, even though I still was like in love with shows and going to shows. And I really didn't look back. I never actually went to a Broadway show or an off-Broadway show and said, I wish I was still doing that, which as much as I love it and admire those who are, I just, it to me was in a weird way, a dodged bullet. And I think partly because I had the lack of control. I think I couldn't have done well still being at the mercy of people behind a table saying, yeah, no. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you that, not to harp on Charlie Rose, but you went from the Broadway community, which was also a pretty, although everything's changing, a pretty male-led business, to news, which is also traditionally a very male-dominated, significantly um, populated with men in charge. How did you navigate that? Yeah, it's such a good point because my mentors were really men and they were big. They were big men in the sense of reputation and accomplishment and personality. And so Fred was huge. I mean, just anyone who knows him, just the stories were legion about how he functioned. And he was just big, amazing personality. Bill Moyers is a quieter intense but huge presence and obviously has the LBJ having been his press secretary and done some of the most incredible documentaries. And Charlie was huge. Um, And then Mike Wallace and Ed Bradley, you know, Don Hewitt. So 
there were really so Cynthia was my first mentor, Cynthia McFadden, and it's important to mention her because she was in the Fred world, had tremendous um, respect, and I think I saw very early on someone who was navigating that male world extremely well. How do you I articulate you, I that? Really, what was she doing? She that was worked? not letting letting anyone see her sweat. Mm-hmm. That is for sure. I think that that kind of I know it's sort of a platitude to say cry at home, but and it's not that she was tough for tough sake. But she was just, she's, I got this, and very um, opinionated without being strident, but not particularly vulnerable in that job. And I don't really think you could be. And certainly, I would say that was true of every job I had up to even through 60 Minutes. You really, people sometimes who had kids at 60 Minutes would kind of hide the children, hide the babies. Um, Great. But <laughs> it was still. Is this the nurse, I mean, the hide the baby room? No, I'm sorry. I don't mean nursery. Right. Because you just... You Blackout just, curtains. Put them in there. You're just like, don't want to be seen as like, I can't handle this. Mm-hmm. And there was that chapter of 60 Minutes History um, where, you know, the one, the first woman correspondent was not really able to kind of juggle family or said she wanted to, to juggle family and was kind of maligned for it. That has really changed. But I was still... Coming, you know, in the early 90s, I was still uh, coming at the tail end of a real patriarch, p- patriarchy or certainly a male-dominated field. So I think confidence um, and also re- really doing your homework and being ready. You know, like you just didn't want there to be holes that anyone could poke. Um, and, you know, and Mike would push. You know, sometimes Mike, Mike, Wallace, Wallace. Mike Wallace would say, how do you know that? How are you sure of that? You know, that doesn't sound right to me. You had Your reporting had to be kind of ironclad. And that's a, a great discipline to sort of have to f- kind of not just fight for your stuff but defend it. And when you couldn't, you know, then you were – that's, again, that was a lesson there. So if I would say anything to my daughter, and I don't need to because she kind of has inherited it, I think, it's just um, – it's just the work is – the work has to be so thorough. And then nobody can knock you down. So on top of that, you're carrying on your shoulders this legacy of your mother being – a voice, face, and name connected to the feminist movement in America and then worldwide. Is Gloria Steinem someone that you know well? I know her pretty well in the sense I grew up with her. Um, I wouldn't say like we were hanging out all the time, but she was at our Hanukkah parties and she was in my home a lot. And I obviously went to Ms. the Ms. offices with like, you know, just the most fun world in the world. Um, my sister and I would go and hang out. Gloria had all these uh, chocolate bars in her drawer. Um, little known fact. Yes, little known fact. I think that's all she ate, actually. Well, well, she looks amazing. Yeah, she's incredible. I actually just saw her recently at a talk. When I say she looks amazing, she looks exactly the same it's as she does if you look through Time magazine yeah. from the 70s. You're like, what is happening here? Yeah, it's. And when I was doing that, that cover story for New York Magazine and going back to old photos, it's like in my childhood perspective, I didn't realize how beautiful she was. And um, and I mention it because it was part of, of, and she would say this, you know, for better and for worse, it's part of why people could hear her message is mm-hmm. because she was so stunning, even though she was as strong. She's one of the strongest, most courageous people I think I've ever seen. I don't have her courage. Um, I don't have my mother's either. But I, I, fe- I really feel like I've seen there, I don't care what anybody's going to say about me. This is what I believe. Um, and it's why they were able to withstand so all the, the the punches that they took in that in that time, and they have a remarkable friendship, my mother and Gloria, which I admire enormously, enormously. I've heard your mom say that having grown up, she grew up Lower East Side, 
immigrant story with a mother who really wasn't able to kind of pursue her own intellectual and um, her own dreams, things that she probably would have been quite capable of. And so in some ways, after the death of your grandfather, your mother's father, where your mom had grown up in a traditional Jewish family and had a Jewish education, and then her father passed away, and she wasn't accepted as part of the minion as they call it. So here she knew everything, had done all the same thing boys were done, and then That's her okay. mom passes yeah. away. And she's not able to contribute to the mourning process fully. Right. And so she sort of turns her back on religion and, and creates and is a founder of her own religion called feminism. And so you didn't grow up in a particularly religious household, although I'm sure you did the Americanized versions of Hanukkah is our Christmas and sort of all of that. And then... Was it when your son was being bar mitzvah that you yourself thought, wait, what is this? We're doing this ritual. Yeah, what do it, I know about this? It, it's it's actually was earlier, was during his bris. Sorry. So it, that is, uh, that's, about 12 that's years personal earlier. information. That was <laughs> no, 12 years early, right. But it was a moment where I was doing a ritual and saying, have you actually thought about why, not only why you're doing this, but whether you could explain it to him, and not right. just the bris, but the idea of what it means to be in a Jewish family and part of the Jewish line. Right. And I didn't have those answers. No, and all Americans like us who no longer need to have their sons circumcised for health reasons were finding ourselves going through this ritual and then being close up going, this is Yikes. very upsetting. <laughs> This is hard, and this I'm hormonal. Hard. Right, and I right. I mean, and other people are watching all of this, yeah. and it's a crazy and I'm crying. moment. Yes, so I is. would understand why you'd go. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, yeah. I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it with actual yeah, mindfulness. It was, or it was the beginning of realizing you have some homework to do. You got to figure out what it what it means if you're going to have a Jewish home, a Jewish family, and and what that even means because there's you know a thousand iterations of what it means to have a Jewish home or raise Jewish kids. And so, yeah, I started. I wrote, and that's why I, for some reason my way of handling it was to interview famous Jews about whether they care about like being you Jewish, do, right? <laughs> like, of course, you go sit down with Dustin Hoffman if you want to experience, you want to explore your own Jewish identity, and Natalie Portman and Sarah Jessica, who well, it's was on a your really good way. It's great to get paid for our own. I mean, it's you found true. a way to get paid and explore at the same time. That's true. And I also found, I think, a, a fairly mainstream, you know, I wasn't going to the rabbis. I was going to our public figures, some right. of our greatest achievers. Um, and, and figuring out how they integrated or yeah. not religion and career. Exactly. It wasn't the thing they talked about in their New Yorker profile. So where does this fit in for you, Mike Wallace or Larry King or Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Like, where are you holding your Jewishness? Or, or, have or you are you? Or are you at all? Um, so, and it's amazing because when we talk about Gloria, there are times where I've come back to her for a favor, and that was one of them. I wanted to interview her for Stars of David, and then, as you know, when it became an off-Broadway musical, we wanted one of the songs to be based on that interview, and I had to ask her for that permission. Janine Tesori wrote the, this incredible song for Gloria's a fun story. Home fame now. Yes, she's magnificent. She's magnificent, and and Gloria said yes again. And and there's those. I I want to call that out just because sort of in the sisterhood, there were times where Gloria could have been like another. Abby, you know, I've gone, you know, and then when I was doing the New York Magazine story, you know, she's very resistant to making the movement be all about her. And she really was like, I'm not sure I want to revisit all of this history. And it's just amazing how many times she's helped me. So it's a long way of saying Stars of David was my backdoor way of saying, what does it mean to be a Jew? And then this thing that was your backdoor way ended up becoming a show. 
And so it all comes full circle again. It's crazy. Which is why when people say early on in their careers, like, I'm walking away from this thing, it's like it can take so many new shapes and forms in the future that you don't even know. You're so right. And it, it came full circle literally in the sense that I interviewed Steve Sondheim and Hal Prince for the book. And that was, you know, I'm coming back, you know, how many years later from the 16, 15, 16-year-old 16 and saying, and now I want to talk to you. Um, the tables are turned a bit. And and that was, you know, and then for it to become a show, it was exactly like something in the universe is is has is has the marionette strings. It's so beautiful. Well, it is an incredible thing to see how prolific you are. Are you working on a new book now? You know, I've been traveling so much for the uh, the holidays book, my my Jewish year, that I I literally am almost in two cities a day, which is a really wonderful thing, but also has kept me from kind of focusing on the next thing and. Um, uh, this whether this is you know, this doesn't really necessarily track in my narrative, but I'm president of my synagogue, and that's been kind of a full time job. I bet. So both the book tour and the presidency are ending in May, and I, I hope that um, I'm going to kind of come up for air and figure out what's the next chapter. All right, here's my biggest question for you before we go. So Abby did this amazing thing where there are. How many Jewish holidays are there, official Jewish holidays? Probably 18, although you could argue 19. All right. So how many of those are fasting holidays? Six. I find fasting torture, okay? I feel like when I'm on an airplane, I'm never hungrier. And when it's Yom Kippur, I'm never hungrier. <laughs> are there any tricks? How do you fast? What are the tricks? Yeah, it's hard. I think honestly, there's there's no tricks except to kind of keep your head in two things. One, why is it actually not a bad thing that I'm uncomfortable right now? Hmm. You know, there is something to putting ourselves in a position of of discomfort. Of you know, maybe not six times a year, but certainly once, because we're pretty comfortable. You know, I'm hungry, I eat something. I'm thirsty, I drink something, and suddenly you're not able to. If you're strict about it, and it really focuses the mind, not just in a you know crunchy way about those who are feeling this way all the time without the option of filling that that hole, but I'm something's asked of me to make to alleviate someone else's hunger that is not voluntary, that is not because they are observing some ritual, but because they have no choice, mm -hmm. and that does get me through it because it it kind of makes me think, you know, this is sort of the least I can do is just feel a little uncomfortable and annoyed and irritable today. Um, it's harder to do when you're around people who aren't doing it with you, but the good thing about Yom Kippur is that it's a pretty popular fast day, and so yeah. you're not necessarily sitting next Yom to Yom Kippur is trending right now. It's trending right now. It's very hot. <laughs> Hashtag, Very hot. Hashtag fast. I hope that you will come back because there are so many things that I would love to explore with you. So many subjects. Thank and you. I am so honored to have you here today. Thank you, Abigail. Thank Pogerden. you, Alana. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. 
Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.